Good evening. How are you guys doing? Well, this evening we're going to close out our series of studies in 2 Peter. You can turn with me in 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 10 where we left off last week. Now, last week we were in this last section that deals with the truth about Christ's return. Christ's return. So this evening we have a wonderful subject to continue on. For last week we saw how the Lord spoke through Peter to us and to all those that read his epistle on how to deal with scoffers in the last days. So we talked a lot about scoffers, those that mock the truth of his coming, those that don't believe that God created the heavens and the earth or that he brought the flood on the world, the wicked world, those that scoff at the truth of the past and the truth of God's word. And that was last week's study in verses 1 through 9. But this evening we pick it up now in verse 10. And we're going to be talking about how to live as disciples in the last days. Now this message would have been relevant at any point, uh, including the first century when Peter wrote it. But I think, as I've said before, if, if those were the last days, these are the, these are the very last days. So we live in a time where we need to be instructed as to how to live as disciples because if we were to say, you know, live like a decent person, today that definition doesn't really hold any value because everyone seems to do what's right in their own eyes. People have a, an understanding and, and an interpretation of decent and moral that, that can mean just about anything anymore. So living in the last days requires us to be taught from God's word on how to live as his disciples. So with that as our introduction, let's jump in and finish out our series of studies in this book. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You're a good and a gracious God, and you've been so good to us. And so we desire to just please you with our lives. May our lives bless you. May you bless our lives. May we be able to live our lives for your glory, according to your word. And as you instruct us, as you teach us, as you guide us and as you lead us, may the result of our lives be that others come to know you as well. For that is our great desire. It's truly why we're here and you haven't brought us home, that we might reach the world, the wicked world around us. So Lord, do that work by the power of your spirit through our lives and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, we're now in 2 Peter chapter 3 and in verse 10. And I actually just want to look at the first verse there, verse 10, because it tells us there, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Now, this is very interesting because this verse encompasses quite a few things. And I want to take the time to kind of break it down because it's just one verse, but the things that are talked about in this verse span over a thousand years. So let's just take a moment, look at it, and realize that just like knowing the truth about the past empowered us to live for God, knowing the truth about the future, our future, encourages us to live for God. Once you know what's going to happen, and you can as you study God's word, once you know what's going to happen in the last days, that should at the very least encourage you to live for God. See, one of the things I'm really encouraged by right now is because anyone who doubts that the church is being sifted hasn't really been awake. I mean, we are looking at the church being sifted before our very eyes. 
And what's happening is those who truly want to live for God are stepping it up. They're living for God in a big way if they weren't already. And those that really weren't interested in living for God, they were just sort of coming out and it was something to do either on a Sunday morning or Wednesday night or some other event. You know, they're finding that the price is just too high to pay for pretending to be a Christian. And it is. <laughs> the price is way too high to pay if you're just going to pretend to being a Christian. It's not cool. Not that it ever was cool. But, but now you're going to be persecuted. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to have to pay the price of being alienated sometimes simply for being a Christian and a follower of Christ and the, and the teachings of God's word. They're not popular. Far from being popular, they're called hate. So if that's the case, then certainly what's happening in the churches were being sifted. So knowing the truth about the future, knowing where this thing goes, for those who are truly seeking God, they're encouraged to live for God. Now the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that Jesus will return for his church. Can I hear an amen? He will. And I want to read a few scriptures just to back this up. I don't usually do this because the scripture is sufficient in and of itself, but sometimes cross-references are somewhat helpful in understanding what we're talking about. And so first, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it for you, but first I want to look at 1 Thessalonians. And uh, in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 4, and in verse 16, thought I had a bookmark, must have fell out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and in verse 16. There's a lot here about what we call the rapture of the church, but one thing I want to highlight, because here we read that the day of the Lord will be as a thief, in, you know, in thief, come as a thief. And uh, that, that was in our text in verse 10, but, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Well, that is not the first time we've heard that phrase used in the New Testament. In fact, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that Jesus will return for his church in exactly this way. We read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. These are encouraging words. You know, as we keep going, though, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, And they will not escape, but you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. So there, that gives us the understanding that, yes, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, but we are not like those who are surprised by the day of the Lord. It's not going to catch us by surprise. It will catch the world by surprise. But let's stop and and just talk about what we're thinking about here when we say the day of the Lord, because... That is such a broad subject, and it is such a broad term. Last week together, we talked about the fact that the, uh, uh, that the day of judgment uh, would come upon the earth. But when we talk about the day of the Lord, we could be talking about the day the Lord comes back for his church, the rapture of the church. We could be talking about the day the Lord comes to judge the earth. 
Uh, it all is sort of in, in, incorporated in this term, the day of the Lord, which is not one day. It's just the day of the Lord. The, the time of God coming and intervening in the world. Now think about it that way. The day of the Lord. Like we might say uh, uh, a, a, a day when things were wonderful. And we're talking about a time, really, a time period. The day of the Lord. Jesus spoke of his return for his church in the same way. In Luke's gospel and in Revelation 16, verse 15, um, I, I could read those verses. It kind of says the same thing. Uh, maybe I will because it's helpful. In Luke, Jesus' own words in Luke 12, verse 35, tell us this. He says, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like men waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. I tell you the truth, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready if he comes in the second or third watch of the night. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. So this term, this idiom is used in the scripture by Jesus as well. When he talks about returning for his church, it's used when he talks about returning to judge the world. Essentially, it's saying this. If you know someone is going to break into your house, you're not taken off guard if you're prepared. But if you're not prepared, it's as if a thief breaks into your house and you're not prepared for it. So the, the encouragement is to be prepared. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief. That is, most of the world isn't going to see it coming. And when Jesus spoke of his return for his church, he used phrases like that. And as John was writing the book of Revelation, actually recording is a better way of saying it, as he was recording the revelation of Jesus Christ, there's one point where he literally stops in the middle of his narrative in chapter 16, verse 15, and adds, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. So you see, that's all about being prepared and not being taken off guard. The church should not be taken off guard. We should not be surprised by the Lord's coming for his church or especially his return to judge the world. That should not surprise us, but, but we're talking about the fact that the world will be surprised by this. So, Jesus spoke of his return for the church this way. Paul, and we've already read it in 1 Thessalonians, spoke of Jesus' return for his church in the same way. Now there, we're definitely talking about the rapture of the church. Because he will unexpectedly return, w- without any announcement, in the air to receive his bride. This we know to be true. Now, this is not the second coming of Christ as the conquering Messiah of Israel. In fact, it's called the rapture, and it will precede the return of Christ uh, to the earth by at least seven years. I personally believe by at least seven years. Some people believe three and a half years. Some people believe shortly before. But certainly before the Lord returns to judge the earth, he's he's going to return for his church. Now, all indications by what I read are that it will happen before Daniel's 70th week or the seven years of tribulation. That's what I believe. That's what I teach. It doesn't mean I'm right. It just means that that's what a premillennialist, pre-tribulationist dispensationalist might teach you. 
But that's all that means. What we do know is the Lord definitely is coming again for his church. You can dispute when the rapture will take place, but not that the rapture will take place, okay? So we know that, and that's talked about like a thief in the night because it will happen unexpectedly, and the world will not be prepared for it. We, on the other hand, brothers and sisters, should be expecting it at any moment, especially as the days become darker. The rapture will precede the return of Christ, as I said, by probably at least seven years. But he will, when this happens, command those that have died to receive their bodies, their resurrected bodies, and enter into his presence. And then he's going to command those that are alive to receive their bodies and enter his presence. So the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up in the air with him, and will meet the Lord, and forever will be with the Lord. And this is what we read in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, that word caught up that's in your Bibles, it's mentioned there, caught up to be with the Lord, it means to be violently snatched away. In Greek, it's harpazo. In Latin, it's raptio. It's where we get the English word rapture from. So people will say, well, the word rapture, the term rapture, it's not even in the Bible. That's not true. It's used quite a few times. In fact, we just talked about it recently in the book of Acts. When Philip was caught up or raptured or violently snatched away uh, from the desert, and, and, and he was found in Azotus. Same word is used. Same word that's used here in the scriptures we're looking at. And you know when we talk about the five foolish virgins and the five wise virgins, and how five in Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, five were prepared and five were not? The purpose of that parable is to teach you to be prepared. I don't think you want to take it too much further than that, but it is definitely teaching you to have oil in your lamp, to be prepared. But what's interesting, in the parable, Jesus says that the virgins went out to meet the bridegroom. And that word for meet is the same word that's used when Paul says to meet the Lord in the air. So let's understand it really has everything to do with the Lord coming back for his church. But that's not all it talks about, because the day of the Lord will come like a thief as well when he returns to judge the living and the dead. And and we know that because the world, even though they should know when it's going to happen, they don't believe it that will happen, and and they're not prepared for it when it happens. But again, I believe the church will return with him, and we won't be here when he returns. We'll be with him when he returns. Okay. Now, the Holy Spirit is also, in this verse, in addition to this phrase, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, which we've talked about, what it really means is at a time when you're not prepared, but you should be prepared, uh, or when the world is not prepared. It also goes on to say, but the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. This is interesting, because now he's jumping ahead past the rapture of the church, past the seven years of tribulation, past the 1,000-year reign of Christ, to the end of the millennium when the earth and the heavens are destroyed and God creates a new heaven and a new earth. So putting those together, it seems like it all happens at once. But remember what we just read last week in verse 9, or actually the latter part of verse 8? With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. So, all of this takes place over a thousand years, but that's sort of the key. We're talking about the day of the Lord, and he just told us that the day of the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
it's true that he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So in a way, that idiom sort of tells us that God is patient. But it also gives us a clue as to how to view the day of the Lord. It's actually not one day, but it's a time period that spans a thousand years. Are you with me? Okay, that in the context of what we read makes perfect sense. Now, we have other scriptures that give us a better timeline, but here we know this is how it starts. The Lord returns for his church. This is how it ends. The heavens and the earth are destroyed, and he creates a new heaven and a new earth. But isn't it interesting? Those are sort of the bookends of the day of the Lord. Now, back to our text, let's realize the Holy Spirit has revealed to us not only that Jesus will return for his church, but that God will destroy the heavens and the earth. Now, of course, that's not going to happen when the church is raptured. It's not even going to happen immediately when the Lord returns. He'll rule and reign for a thousand years. We know from the book of Revelation in chapter 20, Satan is released, and then it's all destroyed, and he creates a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth. And all Peter is doing is sort of reminding them of these truths, which they already were taught. But here we know this, God will destroy the universe, and he's going to destroy the universe the same way he created the universe, by his word. So he created everything by, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, you know, he just spoke it into existence, out of nothing. But he's going to speak it into oblivion as well. And this is talked about in Revelation 20, verses 7 through 15. Now the word for destroyed that's used here means to loose what is compacted or built together. In other words, to break up. Destroyed, it actually means to break up. Now what's interesting, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17, Paul tells us that Jesus is not only the creator of the universe, but he's the creator that holds all things together. By him, all things hold together, or some translations say consist. By him, all things hold together. Now, you are probably like me when you were in science class, or maybe you're not, maybe I'm the only nerd, who tried to figure out what is it that keeps the nucleus of an atom together. Think about it. You play with magnets for a little while. As a kid, you figure out that opposite poles, what? Attract. Like poles, repel, right? The ends of the magnet, you know, you know how this works. Well, we have an electron that's circling around a nucleus, right, of, a, of, a, of an atom, whatever atom we're talking about. And in the nucleus, you have multiple protons oftentimes, other than in hydrogen. You have these multiple protons, and you have these things called neutrons, but, but you have these protons, which have a positive charge, clustered together at the nucleus of an atom. Well, how do they hold together? They're supposed to repel one another. Everything I've learned says positive charges repel each other. And then you have this electron, which is a negative charge, which is supposed to be attracted to the positive charge of the proton. And yet the electron doesn't collapse on the atom. It stays together. It consists. It holds together. So I've come to this conclusion that by him, all things consist. By him, all things are held together, which is to say, when God created the universe, it's by its, his power it was created, but it's by his power that it's maintained and sustained. He's the one that keeps that electron from c- collapsing in and keeps those protons 
together in the center. It's him that holds it all together. The scripture tells us that. Paul tells us that. So, when you think about it that way, and I truly believe that's an accurate description of God's power holding the universe together, God needs only stop sustaining the universe and it will immediately dissolve in a fervent heat. Because that's what happens when you split an atom. We know that. So think about it. God said, let there be, and there was, and all of this creation came together. And it's not like he's been straining for, you know, millennia to hold it together. It's by his power. And then when he's no longer going to hold it together, he just stops maintaining the universe, stops holding it together. It's almost as if he just goes, takes his fist and just goes, and it all just explodes. Imagine that. God said, let there be, and he holds it together. And then one day he just says, let there not be. And the heavens and the earth are destroyed in a fervent heat. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty intense, if you will. And so when we read the scripture that says, uh, the heavens will disappear with a roar, and the elements with it will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare, literally all he has to do is stop holding it together, and the entire creation and universe will explode and destroy itself. I have no doubt. And that's what's described for us, pretty precisely, pretty amazing. In either case, Peter may not have known all of that when he wrote this, but he knew the truth. And as we know, science is still catching up with the biblical truth. So that, I thought that was quite interesting. The heavens and the earth will only exist, and we're told when they'll stop being in existence, in verse 7 of this chapter, which we studied last week, They'll only exist until the ungodly are judged. Once the ungodly are judged, there's no need for this existence, for this heaven and earth. It will no longer consist. It will no longer hold together. It will melt in a fervent heat. And we will spend eternity with the Lord in a much better creation, free from sin, sickness, and all the things that make this life very difficult. Amen? So that's the truth about Christ's return. God will ultimately destroy all of his creation, by extreme heat. Now, the Holy Spirit has also revealed to us that because of these truths, we must live in expectance of his imminent return. See, I, I don't care if you disagree with me about the timing of the rapture. You may be right. That, that's not the point. When the rapture takes place, not the point. That the rapture takes place is the point. That Christ is coming for his church and he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. And he could, that whole process, the day of the Lord, could begin at any moment. I've often thought, I would like to be in the middle of a Bible study and I'm okay if we don't finish it when it happens. Can you imagine? The tape just keeps rolling, you know, and we're gone. I don't know who would post it online. Maybe someone who needs to get saved and didn't yet, but... (laughs) Strange thought. But anyway, all I can tell you is that the day will come, and we need to be prepared for it. And that's what we read about in verses 11 through 14. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? It's a good question. What kind of person should you be? You ought to live, and he answers the question, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed its coming. That is, want it to happen more quickly. That's a, that's a good way of looking at it. That, or wait eagerly for the day of the Lord to come. That's another way of describing it. That's how it's described in the margin of the NIV. So with that being true, as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed it's coming, that day will bring about the, again, reiterated, destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. 
But in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. We just talked about that. And it said the home of righteousness. That means it's not only a righteous home, but a home for those who love righteousness. The righteous themselves. That's us, by the way. Once we're given our perfect, flawless, immortal bodies, uh, there will be no sin in us, nor a desire to sin. And we will have all knowledge of what sin is. See, that was a problem for Adam and Eve. They, They were innocent. And when they were given the knowledge of good and evil because they ate of the forbidden fruit, they not only had received the knowledge of sin and sinful things, but they also disobeyed God to get it. So they had sin and the knowledge of good and evil. We will not be innocent. We will have the knowledge of good and evil, but we will not be sinful creatures anymore because we'll have been redeemed and restored to the state of redeemed man. And redeemed man is so much better than man in innocence because Christ's blood is what redeems us. So ideal man is not the innocent man or woman or an innocent man or woman in the garden, Adam and Eve. Ideal mankind is those who are completely redeemed by the blood of Christ. They know forgiveness. They know the love of God. They know the grace of God, the mercy of God, and they're without sin. Think about that. That's God's plan revealed in the Bible, to make us the ideal men and women for eternity. So that's a wonderful, wonderful encouragement that I think we can hold on to. That's what we have to look forward to. Well, Going on here, it says, So then, in verse 14, Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, and I hope you are, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. I think that's a reasonable encouragement for the disciples of Christ. To make every effort. What, to be saved? No, no, no. You can't be saved by your effort. But make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And the only way you're going to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him is in, per, is in the person of Jesus Christ by his grace and his mercy, redeemed by the blood of Christ. So what's being encouraged here is to live in expectance of his return, of his imminent return. And brothers and sisters, if we believe in the coming destruction that we've talked about, it should change who we are. It should change our character. Uh, if you're having a hard time with sin or you're having a hard time following God in some area of your life, Think about where you want to be on that day when he calls you home, either through natural causes or some tragedy or the rapture of the church or whatever. Think about where you would like to be, and that should really be what you're making every effort to attain, to be the person you want to be when Christ calls you home. That is a great encouragement to live for God. Now, if we believe that Jesus will return for his church, it should change our lifestyle. Not just who we are in our character, but our lifestyle. How we live. It should change our lives. You see, there are people out there who claim to be Christians, and I can't judge their souls, but I can tell you that they're not living a lifestyle that's consistent with God's word. And I can only say that if you truly believe Jesus will return for his church, you should not be dictating the terms of righteousness. You should be submitting to God's word and God's definition of right and wrong. That's simple to me. How can you say, but God accepts my lifestyle when the Bible says it does not, or he does not, and the Bible does not say your lifestyle is right with God. It does not say that. How can you keep insisting that what you're doing is okay when you know better? Well, 
The day will come when you'll stand before Christ. And so your lifestyle should be the way you want it to be on that day when he returns for you, or you go to be with him. Now, that's what we mean when we say, when we ask those questions, uh, what kind of people ought you to be? And, well, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of the Lord and speed it's coming. Okay, now we see that God will, of course, again, we've talked about this in verse 12, it says it again. God will ultimately destroy all of his creation by extreme heat. So if that's going to happen, you better start thinking about where you want to be when it happens. If we believe in the promise of eternity, it should change our priorities. Not just our character, who we are, not just our lifestyle, how we live, but what's important to us. What is the priority in your life? Uh, We were just talking about this at dinner tonight, that a lot of Christians who were really just playing at being a a Christian, they've sort of made other priorities since COVID took place. There are things that are more important than going to church and living for God. But Christians who love God have pretty much, most of them, I would say, have made serving God and living for God their priority in these dark days. See, when COVID hit, a lot of Christians just woke up and said, these are the last days, if they weren't awake already. And they said, you know what? If these are the last days, I want my character, my lifestyle, my priorities to be according to God's word. I want my life to glorify God. I don't know how much time I have left. I could die from an illness or the Lord could come back. And I don't want to have to think, oh, if I only had a few more years to serve God. So I've noticed true believers have made God the priority of their lives. I just prayed with a family uh, on Sunday who literally came to me and said, Pastor, will you pray with us? Family of five. Pastor, will you pray with us? We want God to be the priority in our lives. What a wonderful opportunity to pray for a family who who literally said, we feel that God hasn't been the priority and we want to make him the priority of fresh and anew. Will you pray that we can do that? See, that's what's happening in the hearts of true believers. And that's a good thing. What's happening in the hearts of those who never really believed is also pretty obvious, sad, but obvious. Now that it costs you something to be a Christian, now that it's not so popular or that you're persecuted or hated or despised or canceled or deplatformed or silenced, it's easier to just not bother. And I think what we see is the separating of the wheat and the chaff. That's what God talks about in the last days. Sheep and the goats, wheat and the chaff. We see this a lot in many of the parables and teachings of Jesus. Okay, so if we believe uh, in the promise of eternity, which we've been talking about with Christ, should change our priorities. Really, really should. Look, it says, in keeping with his promise, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, uh, the home of righteousness. So that's our promise. If we know that, things should change in our lives. The Lord will create a new heaven and a new earth in eternity. That's talked about in Revelation 21 and 22. And this will be our home for all eternity. It's a home of righteousness. Now, I know, especially parents, you try to maintain a righteous home. And compared to the way some people live, you certainly are doing a great job. But there's no way that our home can be righteousness all the time. Even if you're a really good person and you have wonderful children, there's going to be moments where your home is not the home of righteousness but of yelling and screaming and fighting and getting in trouble and all sorts of things for kids and then for adults not getting along and 
not making Christ a priority. But the day will come when, you know, our best efforts to maintain a righteous home, well, you know, they're going to be rewarded with a home of righteousness. And you and I, we're going to enter into all eternity in a place where there's righteousness because we're around the throne of God for eternity. There's righteousness in our lives, through our lives, around our lives, and forever and ever. Amen? That's the reward we have to look forward to. It's a good reward. The dwelling place of a holy God and of his people made righteous in him. So we're talking about the truth of Christ's return. When these things take place, we can expect it to end up for us in a righteous home in heaven. The home of righteousness. And if we really believe in the promise of eternal righteousness, then it should change us. It should change us. If you're finding that the truths of Scripture are not changing you, please let one of our pastors or elders pray with you to receive the Holy Spirit. Because I can promise you, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you can be saved and not have the filling or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about this on Sundays in the book of Acts. If the Holy Spirit is lacking in your life, it's because you haven't asked. If you ask, God will give you the Holy Spirit. He'll give the Holy Spirit to all that ask. And as he fills you with his spirit, as you're baptized in the spirit, you will have no choice. Actually, you'll want to change. But you'll have the power to change. And that will happen as you study God's word, as God's spirit gets a hold of you and transforms your life, renews your mind. That should be happening in each of our lives. So, I think in verse 14, it says it best. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, what we've talked about, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. And brothers and sisters, listen. We should be praying this way. We should be praying. What did his disciples do? Teach us to pray. What did he say? Thy kingdom come, or your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You should be praying that. We should be praying that. Your kingdom come. Not that you have to pray it like some prayer that's in a form or just repeat the words like we did maybe growing up saying the quote-unquote our father but this is how we should be praying it's how jesus taught his disciples to pray and in addition to praying this way we should be preaching repent for the kingdom of god is at hand which is how john the baptist taught which is how jesus taught which is how his disciples taught the martyrs through the centuries the apostles in the first century Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And, of course, we should practice what we preach. Okay, verses 15 and 16. We've already learned that knowing the truth about the future encourages us to live for God. But, you know, knowing the truth about the future encourages us to share the gospel with others. See, if that's where it ends for you and you sort of fold your hands, sit in your living room or in your finished basement watch some Christian films and read some books, and you never really venture out to share that wonderful truth with others, I don't really think it's hit you. I don't really think it's affected you. If if you can just go home, sit in your basement and wait for the Lord to return, thinking, I'm good. Oh, may the Lord come again. If that's what you respond with, if that's how you respond, then you missed it. Because as we read in verses 15 and 16, we read this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. See, we've been talking about back in our study last week that there were some that said, where is this coming that the Lord promised? And he said, you know, 
His promise, don't, don't consider his promise to be slow. It's not slowness. It's, it's, it's not that he's slow or in keeping his promise. As he says in verse 9, as some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So that patience is what opens up the opportunities for us to share the gospel that others may be saved. So here's the encouragement in verses 15 and 16. It's this, that we should be sharing the gospel with others. That can be on the mission field, that can be in ministry, that can be in your home, that can be in your neighborhood. But let's read what it says. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters. Speaking in them of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. That's a fascinating scripture. Those verses are fascinating to me because the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that we must make the most of the time that we have. And Peter quotes Paul to reinforce this truth. Now, of course, Peter was one of the original 12 apostles, but he wasn't the only apostle. Paul was also called to be an apostle. And he mentions Paul. Peter and Paul had a, a good relationship. Uh, they didn't work together that often. They worked separately, but they were on the same team. I mean, the reason for Christ's delaying his return is his grace and his mercy toward mankind. And if that's the case, are you sharing God's love for the world with the world in the person of Jesus Christ? Are you letting people know that he died on the cross for your sins? Are you letting people know that he rose again on the third day, that he's coming again to judge the living and the dead. The truths of this section, the truth about Christ's return, are you letting people know about that? Because the clock is ticking. Time is running out, and God's patience has allowed us this tremendous opportunity to reach our loved ones, to reach those we work with, to reach those throughout the world, to reach those that are unreached with the truth of the gospel. And the point that Peter makes is that Paul certainly stressed this truth in all of his epistles. And of course he did. If you've read his epistles... That's one thing he made abundantly clear. And Peter considered Paul a dear brother and testifies to his spiritual gift of God's wisdom. And, of course, Paul was gifted with wisdom. But the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that the letters of Paul are, in fact, the inspired word of God. Paul wrote much of the New Testament, not all of it, not even necessarily the majority of it, but he wrote much of it. And it's important to know this that Peter endorsed not just one particular letter of Paul, but each and every one of them. And he admitted that some of what Paul wrote was challenging to understand. And of course, Paul was a Pharisee. Peter was a fisherman. Uh, Peter was not educated the way Paul was educated. And I'm sure a lot of what, what Paul talked about was difficult even for Peter to understand. But what he's talking about here isn't difficult to understand at all. It's that Christ died to save sinners and that his patience in coming again, his slowness, as some men count slowness, is actually his patience in wanting all to be saved. And if we know that, then we must surely be encouraged to share the gospel with others. And we need to make that our, our, our top priority in ministry. Now, the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that, as I've said, Paul's words and Peter's are the inspired word of God. 
And one of the things that happened, and, and Peter was aware of this, that Paul had many critics. We know this from the book of Acts. We know this from his epistles. And they would often twist his words. And because Paul was intelligent, wise, and very smart, he would say things that some people felt empowered, ignorant and unstable people felt empowered to twist. And we see this today. Someone will say something and then they parse it and edit it, take it out of context and make it seem as if the person said something they didn't say. And maybe even scarier today is the technology that exists to make people literally say on camera things they didn't say and do things they didn't do. There, there's software out there that computers are, are, are really amazing. They can literally take a picture of you and make you say whatever it is that they want you to say. There have been some uh, nefarious people who've done this to try to disparage politicians and leaders. But imagine that. You see on the TV, here's Pastor Tim saying that, you know, something awful, something hateful. And I didn't say that, but the computer analyzed my voice, parsed my words, made my lips move. I mean, hey, if they can create dinosaurs in Jurassic Park on the screen and they can make those movies where the animals talk, I don't think it's too far a reach to take a person and change their, the, what they're doing and, and, and what they say. And of course it isn't. I, I just saw something I read, uh, I guess about a week ago or maybe just this week. I think it was uh, Anthony Bourdain. They were saying that they made this movie about his life. And of course, he was a troubled individual, but um, they wanted him to say something in the movie, so they just did that. They just took him and made him say something he never said. And they used the computer to analyze his voice to do it. And these people aren't even ashamed. I mean, that's crazy, right? I mean, not that they made him say or do something wrong. It's just, you do this for a movie. Now, with that kind of power, you better be careful because... The news may release a film of anyone saying anything, and we would never know whether they did or not. Crazy. We used to think Photoshop was bad, right? Well, anyway, I say all that because Paul understood what it was to have critics and to have them twist his words. They were ignorant in what they didn't know. They, they were ignorant. They didn't know Paul. They didn't understand God's word. They just twisted the words of Paul. Now, one of the things they would do, they would twist God's grace into a license to sin. They'd hear Paul talk about the grace of God, the wonderful, matchless grace of God, and they said, you see, he's encouraging people to sin, so God will forgive them. And Paul said, should we continue in sin that grace should abound? And he said, God forbid. And he said that because people were doing that. They were twisting his words, saying that that's what he was saying, that you could just have a license to sin. They twisted Christian freedom into a license to self. Paul would say things like, we're free in Christ. And they'd say, well, you see, he's being selfish. They twisted saving faith into a license to do nothing, inaction. Oh, you're saved. Now you don't have to do anything. But we just learned from Peter, and we hear Paul say it all the time, make every effort. Make every effort. They were unstable individuals that did this to Paul. They jealously sought to discredit him. And believe me, Today, critics know no bounds. They will do whatever they can to disparage a person they hate or dislike. And these men would ultimately suffer the same fate as that of all false teachers. And of course, Peter talked about false teachers in the previous section. He shared with us the truth of false teachers. And one of the truths is that they would be destroyed. Notice it says, 
They are ignorant and unstable people in verse 16 as uh, they do the other scriptures. They distort uh, the other scriptures to their own destruction. So as it says here, ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So it's interesting that they just distort the truth and they're going to be destroyed. They're going to be judged for it. But one of the other things you see there is that Peter places the letters of Paul on par with the other scriptures. What is he talking about? The Old Testament scriptures. So that is the Holy Spirit's way of endorsing the New Testament, or at least much of it, and putting it on par with the Old Testament. Finally, in the last two verses, knowing the truth about the future not only encourages us to live for God, not only encourages us to share the gospel with others, it protects us from the dangers of false teaching, which so much of this letter had to do with. Verses 17 through 18 Here's how Peter closes out his second epistle. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, notice he wasn't really telling them something new. Be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. He ends with that benediction, but... The Holy Spirit has revealed to us that we must be on guard against false teachers, those that would distort and twist the words of the New Testament writers. See, there are people today that, in order to distort God's love, will say that God hates homosexuals. The Bible doesn't say that he hates any sinner. He loves sinners. In fact, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God demonstrated his own love for this, for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God doesn't hate sinners. He hates sin. Why does he hate sin? Because he loves us. Sin hurts us. He hates sin because it hurts us, because he loves us. So there are people that will say, God, there are some professed Christians that will say that God hates homosexuals. He doesn't. He loves all people. Does he hate sin? Yes. Why? Because he loves people. He loves them so much, he doesn't want them to continue in sin. So you see, they'll twist that. But if you read the Bible, you'll see God never says he hates sinners. He loves sinners. He hates sin because it hurts sinners. But that's an example of those twisting of the words. But there are false teachers out there that will tell you that. It's possible for us to be, as it says here, carried away from the truth through false teaching. And it's possible for us to fall from our secure position in the truth if we abandon it. If you abandon the truth, there's no telling where you may end up. You know what's sad? There are many sinners, of which we're among, who were going to a church and they knew they were living in sin. They were struggling with their sin. They were trying to deal with their sin Then they found another quote-unquote church with false teaching that told them, that's not sin. You can come to this church, we'll accept you as you are, and you can continue in sin because God loves you. And we put God's love above his word. And that has happened so many times. So someone who was on the fence, struggling with their sin, trying to grow, found a church where nobody either mentions it, or if they do mention it, It's just in a way of saying, it's okay, God loves you the way you are. Which is true, but is not all of the truth. Because he loves you the way you are, but he loves you too much to keep you that way, or leave you that way. So, we see this a lot, and that is false teaching. 
It is possible for us to fall from our secure position in the truth if we abandon it. That's what Peter tells us. And the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that we must grow in our relationship with God. I want to I just end on that point. Look at verse 18. Don't be carried away, right? Don't fall from your secure position. But what? Instead, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow. You and I, we should be growing in God's grace and, and knowledge. How do you grow in the grace of God? Well, you've got to study God's word. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. How do you grow in the knowledge of God? You have to learn. So that's why we spend so much time in God's word. Now, we grow in the grace of God as we acknowledge our great need. See, how do you grow in grace? By acknowledging your need for God. If you grow in pride, you don't acknowledge your need for God. And then you're not growing in the grace of God at all. In fact, you're falling from grace because you're thinking you need to do something on your own. But when you grow in the grace of God, it means you're becoming more humble. It means you acknowledge your need for God. I need God. God, I need you. We sing that song, I need you. Oh, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. You know, that kind of song professes our heart's desire to grow in grace because we recognize how much we need him. And we grow not only in the grace of God, but in the knowledge of God as we give our lives to Jesus Christ. You learn about God, but you also experience God. You learn about God in his word, you experience God in relationship, and therefore you grow in knowledge. We grow in the knowledge of God as we give our lives to Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, as he is the Son of God and the Lord God Almighty. And he's our Savior, as he's the Son of Man who died for our sins, and he's forever to be praised. Amen? And so we end with that benediction, to him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book and our studies in it. And we ask now that as we continue to live for you and to live in the knowledge of the truth, we ask that you'd empower us and strengthen us. That you give us everything we need to live for you. That we might honor you with our lives. Oh, Lord, that we might live for you, but that we might share the truth of the gospel with others and protect us from any teaching that would say otherwise. Lord, we thank you for your word and for your grace and for your mercy and pray that you'd fill us with your spirit in a mighty way. In Jesus' precious name, amen.